Okay, we got a, a good crowd tonight. We got, I think, 11, 12 if you include me here in the church. And then we have, well, we had six. Now we have five on Facebook. Um, and I think I just heard the door again. I think I did too. Get another chair. Yeah. So I, this is good. We got th- seats up here in front if you want to sit up here in front of the class. Oh, yeah, you can sit there. I, I don't bite. Yeah, right. Everybody sits in the back. Right. Okay. Well, tonight, first of all, can everybody in the church hear me okay? I know they can hear me on Facebook. Okay. So tonight we're going to talk about Moses and how Moses is a picture of Jesus in a lot of ways. And so much so that the, the, the Jews, as they were studying the scriptures, they would say, they would call the Messiah the second Moses. They knew that he was going to be a lot like Moses. They still call him the second Moses, but they don't recognize him yet. But someday they will. So um, we're going to kind of pull out some of the things tonight that show us how he is a lot like Moses. But remember what we talked about a couple of weeks ago. We want to look forward. We, don't, we never want to look back because we can miss stuff if we say, oh, that looks like Jesus. No, we want to take Moses and we want to look at him and then say, okay, now we see how Jesus fulfilled this. So it's because the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. Jesus doesn't point back to the Old Testament. It's purposely done that way so that all who read the Old Testament can find Jesus and know beyond a shadow of a doubt when they start reading about him in the New Testament that, hey, here he is. So we're looking forward, and it's, it's easy to look back and say, yeah, that's him, that's him, that's him. But when you look forward, there are things that will come out that you may not have seen before, and hopefully we'll find some of those tonight. Honestly, what I have, I had to stop writing because I said, this is going to take two hours if I keep writing, <laughs> um, and we only have an hour. There's so much about Moses that points to Jesus that it's, it's incredible. Um, Moses and David, probably the two that point the most to Jesus than any other characters in the Old Testament. Um, But before we begin, I want to say a a quick prayer just for our gathering and for those on Facebook and and also for the people in Florida. Um, We just heard that uh, Debbie Cordery's daughter, Tara, has some friends in Florida and their house has been destroyed, but they're safe. As far as we know, they're safe. Okay, that's good. So let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for being in our presence tonight. You're always in our presence, Lord. It's not just tonight. You're always with us, and that is just amazing to behold. So thank you for being a vital part of our lives. Thank you for guiding us, leading us to you, teaching us new ways to find you so that we can grow in our relationship with you. Father, we pray that everything we learn tonight will just further develop that strong relationship that we so desire to have with you. We pray, Father, that it will touch our hearts and teach us just how wonderful and amazing you are and show us just how you have hidden so many things in your word. So let us find it as we lift the veil on Moses tonight. And Father, we pray also for anyone who is in the path of this hurricane We pray, Father, that the hurricane will just subside, will die down, will stop destroying homes. We pray, Father, that lives will be spared. 
And for Tara's friends, Lord, we just pray that they be able to restore and rebuild their home. Such an awful thing to hear that they lost their home, but praise you, Lord, that they are safe. And pray that all will be safe during this storm. So, Father, we thank you again, and we pray that you be with us as we go through this study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Um, I'm going to try to see if I can get some comments. On. Okay, we don't think we have any. Okay, just that so they can hear me. All right, well, let's go ahead and get started. So Moses is found, the first time he's found is in the book of Exodus, second book of the Bible, um, right after Genesis, and he is actually the one who is credited as writing the book of Genesis. So one of the things that I was thinking about as I was putting this together um, is, you know, we have to think about who God is, because if we look at it as, well, God forced these people to do these things so that it would look like Jesus. Well, that's not what he did. But God knew well in advance of anyone ever living that Moses would do what he did. He knew how Moses would be. He created Moses, yes, but he also gave Moses, like us, a free will to choose the things that he would choose in his life. So it's not like God said, Moses, I'm going to use you, and this is what you're going to do your whole life. He let him choose and then knew that it was going to be part of his plan. So it's hard for us to think of something like that because we'd have to look forward in time and then come back and then write it all down. And God just knew well in advance. He knew when he created the world that Adam and Eve would sin. He knew that Moses would end up killing someone and go away for 40 years. He knew that Moses would not want to lead the people out of Egypt. He knew all these things. He knew that we would be sitting here tonight talking about this. That's amazing. So it's hard to wrap your mind around that, but once you do, you can. it helps to show the beauty of what God has done in the Bible, especially as we start to go through these things. So just a quick brief history, and we will eventually cover this because we're going to talk about Jacob and, and Joseph, and I'm kind of jumping around. You know, I, I, like next week, we're going to go back to Genesis and go back to the beginning and talk about Adam and Eve and how that relates to Jesus. But um, we started with Ruth. Now we're going to Moses and, and we'll eventually hit David. So we're just kind of jumping around. But um, if we think about, if you know the story, there was a great famine in the land of Israel. And at that time, Jacob thought that his son, Joseph, was dead. Jacob had 12 sons. And he thought that Joseph was dead. Well, what happened was Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery, and he ended up in Egypt. Joseph did. Joseph ended up becoming a great king and second in command in Egypt, next only to Pharaoh. So he was pretty prominent. And as it is, Egypt had a lot of food. They, they could feed all kinds of people. So when it found out that Joseph was alive, Joseph's brothers had met him, they went back and told Jacob, said, hey, Joseph's alive, we're going to go to Egypt, and we're going to be fed. Otherwise, they were going to die in Israel. So if you think about it on a map, they were going south, down towards where they had come out of, we're going to come out of 400 years later. But what happened was 70 people, this is important, 70 people went into 
Israel, or into Egypt. Jacob, his sons, and their sons and daughters, 70 in total, went into Egypt. Okay? 400 years later, when they came out, they were no more numerous than the stars in the sky. Because God had made a promise to Abraham that if you can count these stars, that's how many people are going to come from you. More than that. And then he later went on to say that they would be more than the sands on the sea by the sea. And that is more than the stars, well, as far as we, can, we know and what we can see. There's probably more stars than there are grains of sand on the seashore, but we just don't know of all of them. But anyway, basically God was saying, you're going to be very numerous. So 70 people go into Egypt, and 400 years later, 600,000 come out. It was pretty amazing. They just kept multiplying. Well, while they were there, 400 years is a long time. So when they first get there, Joseph's alive, and he gets to meet up with his dad again, and everything's great. But think about 400 years earlier in our history. So let's go back to 1622. We weren't even a nation yet 400 years ago. We were just 14, 15 years from the... um, what was that settlement in Virginia? Um, anyway, was, Jamestown, thank you. We were just 15, 415 years from Jamestown. So 400 years, a lot can happen. Do you know anybody from 400 years ago? No. You may know someone, well, you know someone that's over 100 years old. Um, but we don't even know anybody from 200 years ago. They're not still living, okay? So what I'm getting at is after 400 years, New pharaohs had come. Joseph had died. All the pharaoh saw was there's a lot of people, a lot of people. And what if they decide they're going to overtake us? Or what if our enemy invades and they say, we're going to side with the enemy and overtake Egypt? So he said, we got to do something about these Hebrews. There's just too many of them. So he made them slaves. And then when they kept multiplying, he would... Um, assigned taskmasters over them, and he kept imprisoning them and enslaving them more and more. And the more he did, the more they grew. Such a large amount of people. And then Pharaoh says, okay, you know what? We've got to stop this somehow. Every Hebrew baby boy that's born, throw him into the Nile. Just kill him. Throw him into the Nile. So As these babies are being born, they're being thrown into the Nile, and somehow they're still multiplying. Well, what happened was people were hiding the babies. They were letting them grow. And that's what happened with Moses. So in Exodus chapter 2, what I just went over was basically Exodus chapter 1. They multiplied in Egypt. So when we get to Exodus chapter 2, I'm going to read this first part. Now, a man from the house of Levi, that's one of Joseph's children, the third child, Levi, married a daughter of Levi, and the woman conceived and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, is what my Bible says. If you got a Bible, look up Exodus 2, 2, and see what word is used. Um, I know the King James Version says goodly. My Bible says beautiful. And I'm wondering what others might say. If there's anybody on Facebook that wants to comment too, please do. This is godly or goodly? Goodly, goodly. Goodly, yeah. Yeah, that's King James Version. He was a goodly child. 
fine. Fine. Okay. So fine, beautiful, goodly. Well, the word that was used, I brought a couple of my friends tonight. This is what's called an interlinear Bible. If I open it up, if, if you can see, there's English words in there and there are Hebrew words in there. So if you understood Hebrew, you could, reading right to left, you could read across here and read these words and you would see the English word with it. So when I get to Exodus chapter 2, verse 2, there's a word there. And it's, um, I think it's like five letters, Hebrew letters. I took a picture of it so I could reference it a little easier tonight. Um, it is one, two, three, four, five. Yes, five Hebrew letters. And that word is only used a couple of times in the Bible. And the first time it was ever used was at the very beginning when God said, let there be light, and there was light, and the light was good. The light was good. Okay? So when God created the world and he said, let there be light, and it was good, it was a very unique word. So unique that if you, if you can see this, I don't know if you can see this very well or not, but um, it has English words on the bottom and then Hebrew words, and there's this big blank for, there's a big blank right there where that word good is used because when they translated this particular Bible, they weren't sure how to translate it. Was it good? Was it fine? Was it beautiful? And those are all similar things, but the really unique thing about this word is that it was used in Genesis to say that it was good when God created things. So basically what is happening here is the Bible is saying that, that um, Moses was like a light that was good. So much so that it says in the Bible that um, when she could... When she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. When she saw that he was good, when she saw that he was a bright light, when she saw he was fine, whatever it is that she saw in him, she said, this guy is special. We need to hide him. And she hid him for three months. So what God is trying to do here is show you that this is the light that has come into the world for Egypt or for, for the Hebrews right now. Who is the light of the world? Jesus. So here's our first pointing to Jesus because Jesus was referred to as the light of the world. This is a light. This, is, this light hasn't, this word hasn't been used since God created the world. And now here it is. So he's tying the light of Jesus to Moses right when he was born. And in Jewish tradition, they say that that house was full of light. And you could even see it at nighttime. It was just him glowing, and they didn't understand why. So he was special, and they kept him hidden for three months. And then after three months, she makes a, a, gets a basket and puts him into the basket and floats him down the Nile River, put him in the river just like she was told to, but kept him alive so that he, could, so that he would not die because he was special. So... As it turns out, Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses, t 
takes him in as her own and says, and someone says, hey, why don't you have one of the Hebrew um, women nurse this child for you? And guess who she picked? Moses' mother to nurse her own child. And, but he was raised as Pharaoh's daughter, Pharaoh's daughter's child. So he was raised as Pharaoh's grandson. Now, Pharaoh also had a son named Ramses, and we'll talk about him in a little bit. So as we go on here, Moses grows. He becomes very prominent in Egypt, just like Joseph. Um, but then he sees a couple of men fighting, and he goes up to him and says, why are you fighting with one another? They're both Hebrews. And he ends up killing one of them, and he kind of hides the body. Okay, so yeah, here's a prominent man in the Bible commit murder. Okay, <laughs> so that happens a lot, actually. But anyway, um, when he gets found out, somebody says, what are you going to do? The next day he sees somebody else fighting and he says, hey, what are you going to do to me? You're going to do the same thing to me. You did that guy the other day. You're going to kill me. So he knows that he's been exposed. So he runs away. He's gone for 40 years. So he's about 40 years old when this happens. He leaves for 40 years. Now he's about 80. Okay. He's tending sheep for his father-in-law. He gets married in this time. Tending sheep for his father-in-law, and he sees a bush that's burning. And it's not being consumed. Have you ever seen a bush on fire? It gets consumed very quickly. And the hotter the fire, the more it gets the more quickly it gets consumed. Yet here's a bush that's on fire and it's not getting consumed. But what the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what kind of bush. But if we look at the types of bushes in that area, and if we look at what the, the Talmud, which is like the Jewish commentary on the Bible, um, it's not their Bible. It's like a commentary on the Bible. It's all their history and tradition. They say it was a thorn bush. Okay? So why is that significant? Well, a thorn bush, yes, exactly. The crown of thorns on Jesus' head. So here is a fire in the midst of a thorn bush, but the thorn bush also represents strife and difficulty. And God was saying, look, I know you're having a difficult time in Egypt, all of the Hebrews, all 600,000 of them that started out as 70. I've heard their cries. I'm going to bring them out. And Moses, I'm going to have you do it. And Moses is like, but, but, I, but I, I can't do it. He stuttered. He literally stuttered and said, I can't do it. And God said, you'll do it. He'll do it. So this is how Moses was called. He sees this burning bush, which is a, a thorn bush, which is representative of the crown of thorns, where Jesus came to take our pain and affliction and to bring us out of Egypt. Because the world is very symbolic, or Egypt is very symbolic of the world. And when Jesus died on the cross with that crown of thorns, he was, in a sense, bringing us out of Egypt. So here Moses is bringing them, is going to grow, he's going to eventually bring them out of Egypt. And now this is what Jesus does as well. So I'm going to stop there real quick and see if there's any questions, comments. Nothing? Okay. Um, and you're, you're going to get a lot more in the notes. I'm not covering everything that's in the notes. I mean, it would take too long to cover it all. But... Um, there's a lot in there for you to read on your own. And I apologize for this blue on the side. My printer had a little issue. And, um, well, yours will be black because I made copies, but it's blue on mine. Small What's that? Small <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no big deal. Okay. Um, 
Three people were ever given the distinction of the servant of God. Moses was one, Joshua was another, and then David was a third. Now, of course, Jesus was a servant of God. In the Old Testament, this distinction of the servant of Adonai or the servant of God was first given to Moses, and he was probably the most humble of them all. If we read throughout Exodus numbers, um, we can see how Moses did. He was very humble. He, he wanted to help people. He did not want to take anything away from God. And I think I put this in here. Yeah, I did. It's in this section here on this page um, under the faithful servant. When he was writing this down, if we read the first words of the book of Leviticus, it references Moses. And the way that the Hebrew words were written, um, Moses would have come first. So some Bibles will do this. I don't know if mine does. Okay, mine's got a capital letter. Some Bibles will start with a lowercase letter with the Leviticus verse, chapter 1, verse 1, because when Moses was writing it down, he had to put his name first. So Moses called by the Lord is what it is, is how it's literally translated in Hebrew. Moses called by the Lord. He asked God, can I make this a lowercase letter because I don't want it to be more prominent than you in this sentence. That's how humble he was. So that's just a little side note to tell you how, what kind of person he was. Um, But in Deuteronomy Chapter 18, after they've, Moses has brought everybody out of Egypt, they wandered the desert for 40 years, he gathers them all together right before he dies, and he speaks basically the book of Deuteronomy. He kind of recaps in the book of Deuteronomy everything that they've done and has happened to them while they were wandering in the desert. He goes over the Ten Commandments again, but when we get to Deuteronomy 18.18, he mentions a prophet. That, will, that God spoke to him and said, a prophet will come from among your people who will be the greatest prophet. The Jews have been looking for that prophet ever since. And if we read the New Testament, there are people that ask Jesus, are you the prophet that Moses spoke of? And they're talking about Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. And yes, he was. He was the greater Moses, the greater prophet. Moses was saying, somebody greater than me is going to come. He's going to be the greatest among all of you. And he was the greater Moses. He is, he was Jesus. So there's a reference to Jesus in Deuteronomy 18.18. But Moses, until that time, until Jesus came, was considered to be the greatest prophet in all of the Old Testament. Even greater than Elijah, greater than Isaiah. Now, Isaiah wrote one of the biggest books in the Bible, he was, a, he was around for a very long time. Daniel was a great prophet. Um, Jeremiah was a great prophet. But Moses was considered to be greater than all of them because of the things that he did. So if you've, have you ever seen the movie The Ten Commandments? You know how then he takes his staff and he throws it on the ground. It becomes a snake. And the, he swallows up the other three snakes and then turns the Nile into blood. There's a significant... Uh, pointing to Jesus right there, too, because Jesus turned water into wine, and when we take communion, we don't drink 
wine, we drink juice, but it's to represent the blood. So he turned water into wine. Moses turned the Nile into blood to show the, the significance. But anyway, Moses is doing all these different things. And on this page, and I just realized I don't have page numbers. I think it's page three. Yeah, page three. If you look at the bottom, these aren't, this is not even a comprehensive list. This is just what I could fit on the bottom of this page. There's a lot more. But in Exodus 4.9, Moses turns the Nile into blood. Jesus turns water into wine. In Numbers chapter 16, um, a, a plague had broken out, and Moses doesn't do anything. He just simply speaks. He says, Aaron, grab your censer, go get some fire, and run out into the crowd. Because this, this plague was starting where they were standing, and it kept going out among the people. So like, if it started with me and it would go out to you guys, then to, to the back row and keep going, and people were dying. So he said, go grab the censer and run out and stop this plague. And as he got, when he got to the point where the people were dying, they stopped dying at that point. That's very similar to how Jesus just spoke in John chapter 4 when a nobleman's son came to him and saying, come see my son so he can live. And Jesus said, go, your son's going to be fine. He just spoke the words and his son was fine. He was sick, he was going to die, had some kind of plague. So we go to Exodus 16, Moses feeds the people by telling them to go pick up this stuff that they say, what is it? The word manna literally means, what is it? So if you've you've heard of the manna from heaven, it's this little like bread-like substance that appeared in the morning when they were camping because they were hungry. So Moses had asked God to give something and he gave them what was like bread So he feeds them manna or bread, and Jesus feeds 5,000 in John chapter 6. We've probably all heard of the parting of the Red Sea, right? Parting of the Red Sea, Exodus 14, 21. Having control over nature, Jesus, though, walked on the water instead of parting the waters. He walked on the water. Exodus chapter 10, uh, verses 21 to 23 he brings darkness to Egypt. All of Egypt was in complete darkness. I'm sure somewhere, somehow, someone has proven scientifically how that could happen and why it happened. But the fact that the Bible says it happened is good enough for me. And I'll tell you why in a minute. But anyway, in John chapter 9, Jesus takes the darkness away from a man. So you see how these things are coming, like turning the Nile into blood and then turning water into wine, parting the Red Sea, but walking on it, feeding the people manna or bread that would spoil, and Jesus fed 5,000. So these prophecies, or these um, miracles, I should say, are very similar, but in a lot of cases, especially in this next one, Jesus is kind of reversing what Moses had done. But still, it's a way to tie these two together. So the firstborn die in all of Egypt, Exodus chapter 11, verses 4 through 7, including the Pharaoh's son, who, by the way, was named Ramses, who was Pharaoh's or Moses's brother. So Pharaoh had a son and a daughter. The daughter raised um, Moses. The, the, the son had a, wait a minute. 
I can't remember how this works now. Basically, Ramses, who was Pharaoh at this time, was the brother of Jesus. They grew up together. They lived together. They were born around the same time, and they were brothers. And then he comes back to, pull, to take all the people away from him. And the last plague that was brought upon them was the killing of the Pharaoh's son. And that's when Pharaoh finally said, let him go. But Jesus refers to that by raising Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. And notice that most of these are in John. John was very specific in trying to show that Jesus is the Messiah, is the second Moses. I have a question. Yeah. So Jesus had a brother named Ramses. Yes, or, uh, Moses did. Moses did. Yeah. Okay, who had that child? Pharaoh had that child. Pharaoh and his wife had that child, okay. Ramses. And then Moses was adopted into the family. Yes. Or it might have been Pharaoh's son had Ramses. That's what it would be. Yes, because they were, yes, because the Pharaoh at the time, saying throw everybody into the river, his two grandsons were okay. Moses and Ramses. Okay, that's where I was going wrong. Okay, so John was really trying to show how Jesus is a lot like Moses. And just a, kind of on a side note, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John 1.1 starts out, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So he's trying to show that everything that happened in the beginning, this is Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that. He's trying to say, everything that happened in the Old Testament, Jesus is the final fulfillment of all of that. So, back to the plagues for a moment. Um, Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, if you don't let my people go, I'm going to do this. I'm going to turn the Nile to blood. I'm going to have locusts come and destroy your crops. I'm going to have frogs come out of the river. I'm going to have insects um, destroy everything. He just kept bringing all these things up. Every single one of them, this isn't in the notes, it's just something I just remembered, but every single one of these 10 plagues had something to do with the 10 gods that Egypt believed in. So basically, our God was saying, I am greater than all 10 of your gods. The final one being Pharaoh, who was not a god, but more of a demigod or a semi-god, like a part god, part man. And by taking his son, he was showing that God was showing that I have control over you as well as ever, all the other gods. But there was a god that, of um, frogs. There was a god of insects. There was a god of light. So he took, made everything into darkness. There was a god of the Nile. He turned it to blood so they couldn't, couldn't use the water from the Nile for their crops. So basically, God was trying to show Egypt that he was in control. I am the only God that exists, and I want you to let my people go so that I can take them out from their suffering, and he finally does. But even more than that, if we read the book of Revelation, if you read it carefully, you'll see that things that happen in Revelation mimic the things that happened in Exodus. Water gets turned to blood in Revelation. There's darkness across the land in Revelation. There's a plague of locusts in Revelation, just like in Egypt. And 
in the end, there's a huge amount of people that die for not believing or putting the blood of Jesus over their heart. So everything in Exodus, all the 10 plagues are mimicked in the book of Revelation. Again, another way to show that the Old Testament leads to and proves the New Testament. So that was just a side note. So any questions? Am I going too fast? Anybody's fallen asleep yet? Okay. Um, I'm, I'm locked up on my Facebook. I hope it's just my... I just want to take a quick look here and make sure that... Okay, yeah, we're still on Facebook. So all the plagues, were those the ones that Joseph warned the Pharaoh about that he dreamed of? Um, no. Did you say Joseph warned the Pharaoh? No, that was something different. Okay. Yeah, that was something different. Um, what Joseph, or what Pharaoh had dreams that there were um, fat cows and skinny cows and, and big stalks of corn and small stalks of corn. And then Joseph interpreted that dream to show him that there was going to be a famine coming and they needed to take all the, during the good years, store all that food up so that when they, the lean years came, the lean cows and the lean corn, that they would have food. And that's exactly what happened, and that's what led, or um, not Abraham, Jacob and his sons into Egypt to get the food. So Joseph, <laughs> without giving away some of the Jesus stuff, which we'll talk about in a couple of weeks. Joseph was already there. Joseph was already there, yeah. But Joseph kind of set the stage for his brothers to come in, and he redeemed them with the food. So, okay. Um, I want to go back to John for a moment and show you some of the things that um, John did. If we, I think this is page four. This is further ties to John. Uh, We went through the first one, Genesis 1-1 and John 1-1. The very last verse of Deuteronomy, the last thing that Moses wrote, Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 10 through 12 says, Since then no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, who did all the signs and wonders, and the Lord sent him to do in Egypt, to Pharaoh and to all his officials and to his whole land. For no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in all the sight of Israel. And then John chapter 20, verses 30 to 31 Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So what John's trying to do is he's really trying to mimic what Moses did in his writings. Moses did a lot of other things. Jesus did a lot of other things. For no one has ever shown the mighty power so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And um, he did it in all sight of Israel. He did it in the sight of his disciples. He just He's trying to make these parallels back to what Moses had written to show us that Jesus is indeed the second Moses or that prophet that Moses spoke about that would come after him that would be greater than any other prophet.
So before we get to the bonus content, I do want to cover one more thing um, just because I think it's kind of interesting. And it does in a lot of ways show us. You have to really use your imagination, I guess, for this one. But once you hear it, it does make a lot of sense. So during the course of coming out of Egypt, um, Moses goes up on the mountain and he goes up on Mount Sinai and he speaks to God face to face. And when he comes back, he's all bright and shiny, and he has to put a veil over his face because he's so bright. And But anyway, he when he goes up, he gets the Ten Commandments, okay? And they're written by God on two tablets of stone. And he comes down the mountain with these Ten Commandments, the beginning of the law. And what's he see? Does anybody know? Yep, worshiping the golden calf. And he takes the... Now, in the movie, he takes him, throws him at the calf, and the, and the calf blows up. That's Hollywood for you. He basically just throws him on the ground, and they break the pieces. Okay? But Moses goes back up on the mountain and gets a second set. God could have and should have completely destroyed them altogether, but he lets them have a do-over. He makes another set of tablets, and Moses comes back down. This time he doesn't have to destroy them. But what does that mean? How does that point to Jesus? Well, a couple of ways. If you think about what Jesus said to um, Nicodemus, we talked about this on the first night, that unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Because we are born physically alive, but spiritually dead. So when we are born again, we are born spiritually alive. We become alive in our spirit. Our spirit becomes alive when we believe in Jesus because he fills us with his spirit, which brings our spirit to life. Okay, so it's the second life that Jesus brings forth for us through the Holy Spirit. The first set, the first life is a life that dies. The second life is a life that lives forever if we believe in Jesus. So that first set of um, that first set of tablets was broken to remove the idolatry that had been in Israel. He, what, Moses wasn't going to have any part of that. He just threw the Ten Commandments down and broke it into pieces. But he went and got a second set, and they remain. Many believe to this day somewhere in this world or in heaven, we don't know where it is, the, in the Ark of the Covenant, which if we have time, we're running out of time, but if we have time, I'll try to explain that a little bit because I want to, there's a document here I want to go over. But they're still together and still solid in one piece in the Ark of the Covenant. So our second life is a life that doesn't get destroyed. Our spiritual life is a life that doesn't get destroyed. So Jesus represents the brokenness. Jesus also has two comings. He came as a child and he'll come again as a king. The first coming is like the stones, or the stone tablets that were broken. His body was broken to remove idolatry, to remove sin, to remove all the garbage from our lives. His second coming will be without end, just like that second set of Ten Commandments will last forever. So will he. There will be no destruction when he comes again. The only thing being destroyed is sin and evil, and we will live forever. So 
the first time I heard that, I was like, mind blown. Because subtle little things like that in the Bible. Like we talked about last week, how the, the camps, when they camped at the... Um, when they built a tabernacle and they would camp around the tabernacle, it formed the shape of a cross. Well, Donna gave me something tonight, and thank you for that, Donna. Oh, you're welcome. <laughs> um, make sure you read this bonus content. We don't have time to go over it tonight, but make sure you read this because it's, it's pretty good too, how John and, and Moses are tied together. But So actually what I wrote in here is basically what Donna gave me tonight. So... Praise God for that, to tie the two together. I didn't know she was going to give me this. And I wrote how I wrote about the tabernacle and things in the tabernacle and how John was pointing them out. And so here she gives me this, and she's, he starts with the altar. This is where the sacrifices were. And then once you move past the altar, you come to the lavar, so where they washed their hands. The priest would, before they go into the temple they, or the Holy of Holies, they would wash their hands, okay, the high priest would light incense just outside of the Holy of Holies where God dwelled. To the right would be the showbread. To the left would be a lampstand of seven candles, not like the Hanukkah candle that has eight. This one only has seven. Hanukkah candle was for something different, but it's to the left. And then as you go forward, there's a veil that um, had pictures of they look like animals, basically, with wings, but they were the animals that are described in the book of Revelation. They're a specific kind of angel that, um, that, are, that exist in the heavenlies. So anyway, past that veil was the Holy of Holies, and there's two angels sitting there over top of the Ark of the Covenant. And this is where the smoke would come down from heaven and sit in that place, and that was the presence of God sitting there in what was called the mercy seat, or the, in the Holy of Holies. But if you look at the layout, and I didn't see this at first until Donna pointed it out, what's it look like? It looks like a cross. Now, for you on Facebook, you don't have this yet. I, I just got this tonight, but I will make sure I get it uploaded, or I'll have copies printed out for everybody at church if you come on Sunday. But I'll also make sure it gets on our website. But it looks like a cross, the layout of the tabernacle. Now, one thing I do want to point out is the cherubim that were sitting on the Ark of the Covenant. So imagine, if you will, like a big, like this, say this table, but it's, it's a, more like a square. You're not quite rectangular like this, but pretty long, okay? And then they had these poles that they would put through it that they would carry it. They weren't allowed to touch the Ark of the Covenant. They could only hold on to the poles. In fact, in the Bible, in um, First Kings or Second Kings, I can't remember, I think it's First Kings, there's a man who trips and falls, and he puts his hand on the Ark of the Covenant to steady himself, and he dies because he touched the holy Ark of the Covenant and him being unholy. He's in heaven, I'm sure. Terrible tragedy. Wait, what a way to go, but I'm sure he's in heaven. But anyway, um, that's for another time. So anyway, this Ark of the Covenant is so holy and so special to God. This is where God rested when he walked with the Israelites through those 40 years in the desert. And then even beyond that, when they built the temple, they put the Ark of the Covenant in there. So important that the, the Philistines stole it one time. Okay, The Philistines were the enemies of um, 
of Israel, they are what we would probably call Palestinians today. They were in Gaza area, if in modern day Gaza area. But anyway, they stole the Ark of the Covenant from David and they put it into this place where their gods were and their gods were made out of wood and metal. And they came in there one morning, their gods are face down in front of the Ark of the Covenant because God knocked them over and said, you're worshiping me. But they, it happened so much that they said, let's take this thing back to Israel. We don't want it anymore. But anyway, this is where the mercy seat was. This is where once a year, and this day is coming up uh, in about eight or nine days. It's called Yom Kippur. It's the Day of Atonement. And it's in Leviticus chapter 23. Once a year, the high priest would go past this veil and he would make atonement for all of Israel by um, going into this particular room. Now, when Jesus was, when he died, that veil that was on that, you've probably heard this before, the veil was torn. That veil was torn in the temple, showing us that we have direct access to God now through Jesus, we don't have to go through a priest. Okay, but for years and years and years, they would go in here, and what they saw was this area with the two angels sitting on either side. If we go to the book of John, when Peter and John run up to the empty tomb, what do they see in front of this big thing, this big square thing? They see two angels sitting on either side where Jesus once was as a representation of the mercy seat showing that this was showing what the empty tomb was going to look like many, many years later with the two angels sitting there. So I just think that's fascinating. And it's also at the head of this image of the cross, which is where the crown of thorns was, which is where Jesus spoke his final words, forgive them for they know not what they do, and it's just, I could go on and on and on. I could take, stay till 10 o'clock tonight telling you about the things like this in the Bible, but we're running out of time, and, um, and I got to work in the morning, so we can't stay till 10 o'clock. But as you dig into the Bible and you look for these things, God will show them to you. He will show them because he wants to be the one to show you. Sure, you can find it on Google. You can come here and listen to me, but it's God who is working in your hearts. It's not me working in your hearts right now. It's the Holy Spirit working in your hearts, telling you that either this is amazing or I need to read this more or where did I get this stuff? <laughs> Whatever he's saying, it's God working in your heart with you to show you who he is and that he wants you to come to him to find out more. That's the really important thing. God doesn't want me to be the one to show you all of this. He wants to be the one to show you all of this. He's using me to get you started, but he wants you now to come and read the Bible and, and try to find this and ask him, show me some of this stuff. And then you can bring it to me and say, hey, does this, does this count? And I'm like, I never knew that before. Yeah, that's good. I might do that or say, yes, yes, that is exactly what that means. But what's that? Or no. or no, or no, or no, right. I might say no, yeah. So it's just amazing. Now, this last piece of paper, also given to me by Don, I didn't have time to really look this over, but it's um, showing how the armor of God is exactly like the temple setup. So 
um, and I'll let you read that on your own. And I, again, on Facebook, I'll make sure you get a copy of it. But as you read, the first time I ever read the Bible, and I'm reading Exodus, I thought, wow, what a fascinating story. You know, I read about this. I, I saw the movie, The Ten Commandments, and I, I've heard about this before. In my, in my childhood, I had a little golden seal book that had was about Moses. So I, some of it sounded familiar. And then I get to the last part of Exodus. I'm like, why do I have to read about all this temple stuff and this tabernacle and how big it was and this Ark of the Covenant? And, oh, that was from Raiders of the Lost Ark. That was my upbringing. So that's what I, the way I understood the Ark of the Covenant was from Raiders of the Lost Ark. So anyway, but then God's like, he's letting me read it and I'm not understanding it. And then I read it again and I'm like, okay, wait a minute. Now I'm starting to see how the pieces fit together. This showbread, I remember something about Jesus talking about showbread and he's the bread of life. And then you see this lampstand. Oh, and Jesus is the light of the world. And he starts to tie it together. And then I read it a third time and I'm like, oh, wait a minute. Now there's this incense and, and, and God inhabits the prayers of his people it's like sweet incense before his throne is from the Bible. And so you start to tie it all together, and God can do that for you too. It's not just me. I'm nothing special. Because honestly, if you ever went to church as a child, you were already way ahead of me. I didn't start going to church until I was 24 years old, believe it or not. So yeah, it's true. Um, I went maybe six times before that, but started going every week when I was 24 years old. So you can find this too, and God wants you. He's inviting you to come and find this for yourself because it's going to strengthen that relationship with him, and that's what it's all about. Because when you have a strong relationship with him, you'll understand him more. You'll start living differently. Not what you're taught in church. You'll start living what God is teaching you through the Holy Spirit. Church is just there to help us build the relationship. The Holy Spirit is the one that really, really makes it happen. When you're reading the Bible, when you're praying, when you're living, He's the one that makes it happen. It's all about Him. It's all about God. So that's all I have for tonight. Um, make sure you read that bonus content on your own. It's kind of neat. And are there any other questions or comments? Okay, tell me this. Are you enjoying it, or am I going too fast? Or if you got any feedback like that at all, please let me know, because I can alter what I'm doing. You're a good teacher. Okay. You know what? We're impressed. I love that you're putting it in our minds. Well, that's what I'm trying to do, yeah. And, but I want to make sure that I'm doing it effectively. And if I'm not, then I, I want to make some changes, because I know I can get way ahead of people sometimes. And that goes for people on Facebook, too. In the NLT, that verse says, she saw that he was a special baby and kept him hidden for three months. Special, special baby? Okay, yeah. So just if you take nothing else away from tonight, just take away the fact that that word, and I meant to show you in the concordance, it's not used very often, but it... Um, it is a word that the light was good, the light was from God, 
And that light, that particular word for light or for beautiful or for special or for fine or whatever, is only used a couple of times in the entire Bible. When in creation with Moses, and there's a couple others, and I can't remember where they are right now, but it's very important. Moses was a very, very important person in history. Someone that the Jews practically idolized today. Um, they wouldn't say they idolize him because they don't have idols, but they think very highly of him as much as we do Jesus. And we should idolize Jesus. He is our, he is our God. There's nothing wrong with worshiping the Lord Jesus. All right. If there's nothing else, we'll say a prayer, and then we'll be out of here. Yes, go ahead. A prayer for Ruth Hansen. Yes. I saw her son downstairs today, John. He said she was taken uh, to the emergency room last night. Okay, okay. Is she still there? Do you know? Will be for a while. Okay. She required uh, fluids and a blood, a blood transfusion. Hmm. So I'm not sure. Wheeling Hospital? Yes. Okay. Also, um, let's keep um, Helen DeMichael in our prayers because tomorrow is uh, Steve's funeral. It's a private, I wasn't supposed to say anything because <laughs> it's a very private um, thing. He didn't want anybody coming, so um, I can't believe I just gave that away, but just uh, keep Helen in your prayers and their sons, if you would. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for being all that you are, for being our teacher, our savior our guide, our light, for being our relationship. Father, continue to strengthen each and every one of us. Help us to know you more. Help us to understand you more. Help us to seek you more in all aspects of our lives that we may live the life that you have for us. No matter who we are, where we're from, what we look like, all of that aside, Lord, Let us be about you. Let our spirit connect to your spirit so that we know all about you. So continue to teach and guide us each week as we try to understand more how the Old Testament points to your son. Father, we want to pray for Ruth this evening and pray for her strength and comfort as she's in the hospital. And we pray for her healing and pray that she can get back on her feet again soon. And Father, we want to pray for Helen and her sons and pray for their loss and pray that you be the one to fill that void in their lives. And we ask all this of you, Father, and ask us you, ask you to keep us safe as we travel home. We ask us all in Jesus' name. Amen.